Equity is our labor of love. From humble beginnings in the back corner of our old office at 410 Townsend to the remote work world of today, for the past four years, Equity has been TechCrunch's flagship podcast for news on early stage rounds, seed stage startups, what's up with the biggest unicorns, and of course, the hottest IPOs. We've talked to dozens of VCs, recorded hundreds of episodes, and covered the biggest stories in the world of startups and venture capital, all so that you can stay informed. Now, we get asked all the time, how can people support the show? Well, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to Extra Crunch. If you do, you'll support Equity, and you'll get access to things like our best reporting, the Extra Crunch live series, deep dives into sectors, investor surveys, and of course, my daily column, The Exchange. You can sign up at techcrunch.com slash subscribe and use the discount code equity. We appreciate you and your support of the show all these years. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines each and every week. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined, as always, by my good friend Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I am looking good. I am watching my Ghirardelli piles of dark milk and white chocolates, and I'm not allowed to eat it because I'm apparently five until the end of the Equity episode. Yes. And for that reason, we, we promised each other solemn promises to go as long as possible. So please sit back and relax because we're <laughs> going to be here for a minute. But we also have Tosh with us. Tosh, how are you? I'm doing well. I think it's the last week in my equity podcast closet. So I am very excited about it. And that's because you are currently moving out of San Francisco. Yes, I'll be at New Jersey temporarily, but I'll be back in San Francisco. And anyone who tweets at me otherwise, I will block you. How does it feel to be part of a trend of everyone leaving SF at the same time? I'd rather not comment. <laughs> well, you can't not because you're not a PR person. So get into it. Come on. I'm kidding. Like, let's get into the show. We got a lot to get to. And we're going to kick off with the latest about Robinhood, which we have talked about on the show. Oh, my gosh. I want to say once a month for the last like, 18 months. But the the latest and the reason why it is back on our minds is that following the news of the user suicide that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the Times is out with a an investigation, if you will, or a lengthy discussion of Robinhood, the ethics of it, and the the application. And I, I there were some stats in here, guys, that were news to me. I'm, I'm curious, Tosh, when you read this New York Times piece, uh, first impressions, what did you first glean from it that was interesting? I think it was a comprehensive piece. I don't know if I would say it was an investigation, as that, look, a lot of it wasn't a surprise to me. I think it did a good job of building context around why Robinhood went from being a Silicon Valley darling to being controversial in the recent years. It's a data point and we're talking about it. So I think it did its job. Yeah. So some data points from the from the thing. Uh, Robinhood now has 13 million accounts as of May, up from 10 million at the end of 2019. So fast growth for Robinhood in 2020. And for context, Schwab has about 12.7 million, E-Trade five and a half. So Robinhood has now reached really material scale. On the brokerage side of things, there were some tidbits in there that also caught our eyes. Like this year, uh, Robinhood installed bulletproof glass at the front entrance, which is uh, not something you do when your users all like you. And there were some data points. The average customer is 31. As you can expect, Robinhood users trade a lot more than Charles Schwab or I think it was E-Trade customers in the data. So so this is all, all part and parcel of a growing company. There's going to be some bumps in the road, but there has been controversy in the equity team regarding where Robinhood's responsibility lies in both giving users financial tools that let them kind of advance themselves, trade as much as they want, and also keep them safe and where that dividing line lands. And I want to I wanna go to Danny, our resident uh, teenage libertarian Ayn Rand fan, to give us the rundown about why guardrails are for losers 
and you should trade to your heart's content. <laughs> well, I don't know if guardrails are for losers, but I, I, I think you know the, the pattern for the last decade plus for most investment rules has been to loosen the requirements for customers so that everyone can trade everything, right? So we had the Jobs Act that allowed everyday people to invest in startups, allowed crowdfunding. We've loosened accredited uh, investor rules so that more people can invest in more exotic instruments. And then when we did this, we're now surprised that people are taking advantage of these new tools, this easier use to invest in options and a variety of other investment classes. And then we're surprised that some people lose money. And so for my mind, look, I mean, I don't trade options. I, I'm a VC investor. I don't know how to do math. I was a math major. I don't know how to calculate like, you know, Black-Scholes equations and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, so you have to be smart enough to know what you can't do. And to my mind, you know, Robinhood has no responsibility. I mean, it has a responsibility to educate users, to try to help people understand what they're about to do, to give feedback on what an option is. But ultimately, its job is to offer you the easiest way to go do what you want to do. And if people want to do something stupid... You know, it, it, it's similar to almost every other tech platform. If, if users are dumb and want to do dumb things, it's really, really, really hard to prevent that from happening. So I think legally, I don't disagree with you. I don't think that that's wrong from the, the letter of the law. But the ethics of it strike me as slightly slipperier than that because I'm older now and I've seen what people do with access to stuff. At the same time, I am in favor of legalizing all drugs, for example, because I think it's a ridiculous policy approach to treat addiction as a crime. So I am a libertarian in some ways. But in this case, I, I have a question for you that I wanted you to answer to frame your take on this, Danny. So uh, interest rates, for example, would you be in favor of a policy in which interest rates for, say, small loans are uncapped and therefore people could be lent money at any interest rate for a payday loan, for example, in the United States? Yes, I am. I, I don't believe in usury laws, right? This is a free market. Uh, and, and mostly because oftentimes what you see is by putting in a ceiling to an interest rate, what you're really doing is preventing someone who might otherwise take a high interest loan, who needed it, wanted it, and was had the wherewithal to take it. And now the market is saying, no, you can't get that access to that tool whatsoever. Right. And so, I mean, you know, so I don't believe in the Elizabeth Warren approach of saying like, look, you know, there's these rules. We can't allow you to take a payday loan. Sometimes people have emergencies that come up. Sometimes, you know, you need money today in a way that like no bank should really, you know, want to take you on as a customer. And so, you know, much in the way that there has to be a return to high risk. That's oftentimes the case in a lot of un underbanked and unbanked customer profiles is there's a huge amount of risk, right? Whether it's person's not going to pay you back, they kind of skip out and they, they sort of disappear. They're uh, low income, so they don't have a lot of means in the first place to actually take on a lot of risk, whether that's debt or a payday loan. You know, it, it's a tragedy. And obviously, I think the country should do more to support more people through a social system. But at the same time, putting a bunch of rules and regulations to my mind, has never made the financial system better. It has made it worse. It has made it harder to access tools. And look, the, the world has gotten more and more complicated. And to me, the most important thing is to give each person the tools to learn what they want to learn in terms of assets, to learn how to create their own safeguards, and to give them the power to make the decisions that are right for them. No one has to download Robinhood. No one has to install an account. No one has to put money into it. No one has to trade. I happen to have a Robinhood account, which has about $30 in it. Because I don't have the time and, and not, neither do I have the legal or ethical obligation from a TechCrunch perspective to be able to actively trade stocks because I'm a journalist. But, you know, I know my limits. And I, I think that there's this empowerment that comes with saying, look, don't trade if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So I think one of the first things you said was, you know, I'm a VC investor. I'm a math major. I'm not qualified to trade options. I think that's a really good perspective. And it draws a good circle around who might be ready to trade options, which is like seven people. I think the story said that 12% of uh, Robinhood users trade options, which is an insane number of people that are using these tools. 
And going forward to what you said about the whole like, you know, price discovery and, you know, if we can't charge a thousand percent per day, then people might not get access to the loans. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's a ridiculous argument. I think that sounds really good in a debate hall, but in the real world, it's shit. And I think what that does is it allows people to get into cycles of debt that destroy families, destroy wealth, destroy any chance at digging their way out of it. And what you're allowing for is effectively predatory attacks on people who are the least sophisticated. And your argument that poor people are untrustworthy, I think is not a particularly good one regarding where interest rates should be set. So I think that like there's no bridge between us, but I think we could both agree that perhaps Robinhood requiring more education before people are given access to options would be a reasonable middle ground on this one. No, absolutely. And I think, look, you know, there was a lot of focus on the fact that thirteen uh, percent—I th- I think it was thirteen percent of Robinhood customers uh, have actively traded options in some period of time. Twelve or thirteen percent doesn't matter, sure. which is way higher than you know uh, equivalents of Charles Schwab and uh, E Trade. But that said, let me give you another perspective. Maybe Charles Schwab and E Trade—I don't actually know this again. I don't options trade. Charles Schwab and E Trade may not make it easy to do so. It may be the case that if you're a retail customer, the only way to really realistically trade options on a daily basis is to use Robinhood, right? They may have captured a type of clientele that no other bank or no other brokerage was willing to serve well in the marketplace. And so just because they have a higher percentage of their users do that, it may be that those users were heavily underserved by other brokerages and they just migrated to Robinhood. So I, I actually take that as a very a huge positive. It's not just the case that they're higher risk taking. It is that they are actually grabbing customers with a better product. I struggle to ever slam on a company completely that it's help that is helping other people move up in social mobility. I think Robinhood's tagline of democratizing access is like innately a good thing. I don't think that it is necessarily Robinhood's fault that people are screwing up on its platform. It's like I think a lot about the idea of like is it a company's job once it enables someone it can it be responsible for the what people do next? All it can do as a platform, and when it's a platform that's dealing with something as innately emotional as money, this is when it gets trickier. This is why there comes two sides. But if we take away the emotional aspect, let's look at the bones of like, is it a company's job to to make its users stop doing something that require using its platform? I don't think in any world I would love. I'm an optimistic person. I don't think that would ever happen in the way companies work. I think what Robinhood could do in some balancing sort of act is like make its app less gamified. But even we said like a month ago, we were like Robinhood's strength is in its UX oftentimes. Its strength is in its usability. I think it's so much, it's really easy to label Robinhood. And this is my mistake with the New York Times story. I think what they did is like label it as yet another growth at all costs screw up when I think that it is just a, it's, it's tackling a complicated issue. So, well, yeah. and I think, I think, you know, maybe options are too complicated, but then let's say we just trade stocks, right? Which is where Robinhood started. And you invested in Luck and Coffee in, in 2019, hot IPO. You heard a lot of stuff on Yahoo. It beats Starbucks, you know, in China. You had access to it uh, on the exchanges here. You could just trade it uh, in an American exchange. They published numbers and the whole thing's a fraud. And if you had basically kept with the company, you would have lost 96% of your money based on the close today from, from its peak, you know, and, and that's just basic stock trading, right? Now, that may be an extreme example, but like, you know, it's a high risk stock traded in a place where, you know, US regulators and US accounting firms don't have access to the company's books. Fraud is not uncommon in these sorts of contexts. And so should we have protected uh, customers on this front as well, right? And so in my mind, there's always this massive spectrum of risk, right? If you're just investing in Apple, okay, fine. Yeah, it's one of the most expensive stocks in the world. It's one of the highest market cap companies in the world. Presumably, it's relatively safe. Maybe it'll go down 25% this year. That might be the single worst stock to be in. I have no idea. Tesla today, you know, we're talking about a company we've done an equity shot on. 
Would you buy Tesla at, I think it's what, 1400 now? <laughs> it's up another 40% in the last couple of weeks. Like, you know, that's the challenge is like, at what point do the regulators always say like, well, now it's risky. You know, who gets to determine your risk for those sorts of assets? Well, you know, by these arguments that you guys are putting out, which I, again, I don't, I don't really agree with. I think, again, they sound good on paper, but not in practice when real lives and real money and real families and real rent payments are on the line. Um, do they have any responsibility whatsoever then to educate, to limit access to and so forth? Robinhood agrees with me, by the way, in their blog post about this after 100%. the suicide. They said, we are going to tighten up, you know, eligibility. We are going to demand more education. We are going to change our user interface. So Robinhood's actually on my, ironically, I'm arguing the company's position here uh, because they do agree that things need to change. From your perspectives, guys, it sounds very much like you think that there should be zero guardrails whatsoever. The guardrails are for losers, as I said up front. And I, I'm, I'm curious about that. <laughs> no, I Because mean, I what's think... going to happen is that people's lives are going to get screwed up. And if I was the CEO, again, legally, they don't have to do shit, I don't think. But like, if I was the CEO of a company and I was giving people hand grenades, which is how I think about options outside the hands of experts, and saying, go forth. And people came back with stumps on the end of their hand because the grenade went off in their hands. And I went, well, you know what? It's your responsibility. I think my business would suck. And I think that that is why the, these companies that provide easy access to exotic financial instruments, which again, I'm not opposed to in theory, do carry with them the moral responsibility, if not the legal requirement, providing reasonable guardrails to keep people from hurting themselves. Because that's a pro-human and pro-access perspective. I, I definitely think there should be guardrails in some sense. My argument is more that I think that the way the coverage is being framed around it makes Robin Hood out to be devil, a devil and a mistake. And, you know, it should combust overnight. And I think that is the danger of the conversation. Not I, I, I definitely think that they need to stop putting confetti up every time someone does a transaction. Danny, I'll let you close us out. Yeah, I think the you look, of course, they're going to say this. You know, of course, the, the talking points for Robinhood is they're going to be responsible. I mean, now my cynicism is going to kick in uh, on the flip side. Look, they don't benefit from customers losing all their money. The, a customer that loses all their money is no longer a Robinhood customer. So they do have some incentive to make sure people know what they're doing, to explore different options, to have training sets. Maybe you have some sort of like free account where, you know, as much like we did in the 90s or some of us did in the 90s, we had, you know, virtual stock accounts and you see how you did against the market. You know, there's a lot of tools that they could potentially access that actually expands their marketplace. I could actually be incentive aligned. But I, I'm skeptical, as with all tech companies, when their business model is based off trade volume, you know, that they're ever going to be incentivized enough to actually say, okay, hey, we need to lower trade volumes 25%, knock out our profits, knock out our revenues, we're going to IPO because we need to educate our users better. So I don't think that's a setup that's going to work. And also, as we learned a couple of weeks back when we talked about this before, options and selling option order flow is very lucrative for the company, much more so than selling stock option flow or order flow. And so this is they are incentivized to not limit this by their own financial model. So it's a complex situation. We have to move on. We've gone way too long on this. But as you can tell, this is a place where reasonable people can disagree. And we'd love to hear from you. So shoot us an email at equitypod at techrunch.com and we will tell you why you're wrong. Okay, good. Now, <laughs> let's move on. We're talking about immigration a little bit today. Tosh, you covered for TechCrunch the recent, I think it was executive order from the current administration on the immigrant status effectively of students. And I, I was hoping you could walk us through a thumbnail of, of the recent chicanery from the administration. Sure. So basically, I don't know if it was an executive order, but I think it was a rule change. Basically, the Trump administration said any immigrant student that is in the country will have to go home if their universities or schools go fully online in the fall. That kind of rule change also came after Trump said that schools must open in the fall. 
So effectively, it is putting schools and immigrant students in this really unique spot. We can go down all the different impacts it has, but I think high level, the a, a student I talked to put it well. She said something along the lines of, I want my school to remain closed because I don't want to get sick, but I also want to stay in the country. So now it's either me getting sick or me leaving the country. And I thought that really encapsulated why this is such an emotional and a lot of people are saying cruel decision by the Trump administration. Extraneous is the way I think about it. There's no need to do this. The students were at no risk. There's no need to boot them out. This seems like a very antagonistic and I would even say at some level racist take on immigrant students. I think just personally, this is my own bias from having gone to an American school and met lots of people who uh, were here as immigrants and are still here working for major companies and kicking butt and paying lots of taxes that we should have more immigrant students. I cannot imagine the reason behind the the animus against folks that just didn't happen to be born here. It's, it's a surprise to me. Danny, what was your take on, on this situation? I mean, you know, coming from the Silicon Valley perspective, I mean, you know, st- companies are founded by immigrant founders. A, a ton of immigrants work at these companies. A ton of immigrants build up a, a lot of great American companies. You know, it, one of the statistics I saw, something like three quarters of all computer science grad students in the United States are on visas from other countries. And, you know, when you start to look at the infrastructure here, the reality is, is that America's innovation ecosystem is built on the backs of immigrants. And immigrants who come here, who are ambitious, who have dreams of being one of those great American success stories. And and to my mind, it, it's nuts. Like, I remember going back years ago, you know, obviously immigration reform has been live for, for frankly, decades in the United States. But in recent years, this was always the least controversial segment of the immigration population, right? Democrats have always held out for something called a comprehensive immigration deal, because everyone agrees that we want high quality, high income knowledge workers in the United States. It's a lot of the other groups of folks in the immigration stream, which are more controversial, particularly on the right. And so Democrats have always held out and said, we're not going to figure out knowledge workers until we figure out everything else as one comprehensive deal. So we all get something that we want. And so to actually focus on the the top kind of sliver in terms of, you know, those streams of people coming in um, is just nuts to me. Like, if you don't want this, I mean, what does that signal to millions of other folks who come in from family visas, uh, which is an, a, very important to me and dear to me, uh, having gone through that, you know, in a variety of other categories? It just shows that basically the answer is no immigration. And to me, when you look at the history of America, it's it just anti-American. Amen to that. My, my grandmother was uh, an immigrant entrepreneur from Denmark, for example, and came here without money and really without skills. And, and um, you know, I wouldn't be here without her. And uh, I just this is also very personal. I think it's personal to a lot of people. We all we all know immigrants. We, we come from immigrants mostly. And, and I'm very frustrated. But Tosh, over to you. No, I was just going to quote something you actually said, Alex, in a piece you wrote for Extra Crunch. It was the idea that like immigrants don't just get the job done. They often create the job to be done. And I thought that really summed this up well. And I don't know, I thought the conversation can go on forever about, you know, the different ways that the Trump administration has made micro and macro aggressions at immigrants for the past year. This just feels like a very drastic step. One of the interesting things, I mean, just strategically, it doesn't look like it's going to get implemented. So MIT and, and uh, Harvard have, have filed a lawsuit. It's going to go past the election. And I think one of the amazing things about our immigration system and the robustness here is despite the animus, despite the attacks on the system, it still mostly works, right? At the core, you know, millions of people are still coming to the United States, probably less so now since uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. But, you know, what's amazing to me is when you look at polls around the world on which country people want to immigrate to, the United States is still number one. 
And that is so critical to me that we still maintain, you know, the beacon of hope and the beacon of freedom here, that the best people, the people who want to make a difference, the people who are ambitious to improve their lives, this is the home they want to come to. And so even after four years, it's still the case that we're, we're number one there. And I hope we continue that going forward. Yeah. And just to keep in mind, like what you see on the television, if you're listening to this outside the U.S., I mean, you know, there's a lot of folks who listen to equity um, around the world and, and we love you all. Thank you for showing up. Immigration has never been more popular among the general American population, according to polling. Don't think this administration speaks for all Americans. In fact, it speaks for a slim minority of asshats. So we are way over time. So we're going to keep moving forward and do a quick riff on the Uber Postmates deal. Guys, this finally happened. Postmates has a home, $2.65 billion. It almost felt like a bit of a, a weird conclusion to a long-running saga. Does anyone have a hot take on this other than that it's really good for Postmates investors that Uber didn't get the Grubhub deal? That was my first impression of this uh, transaction. I thought it was interesting it was an all-stock deal. At least that's what we have here. Um, I, I think it's, um, I guess it's good to get an all-stock deal from Uber now, <laughs> given the current situation with Uber. Like, if you're actually going to buy into the company, I think that's part of the reason they were able to kind of lock in this deal is is the hope here is that with Postmates and the combination with Uber Eats, you know, the stock price will hopefully uh, improve over the coming months. Hopefully post-coronavirus, there's more drivers as well on, on Uber. But to me, it, it was just such a long saga. And I'm not sure this is the best situation. I just know that, like, as I've said repeatedly on the show, it, it was inevitable the consolidation had to happen. Yes. And I'm not sure that there were certain consolidations that were better than others. I'm actually not sure that antitrust ever entered in this conversation. We talked about antitrust on the past show. I'm not sure that it was ever really discussed of like, well, versus Grubhub versus some of our other options, Postmates was more likely to get through a Justice Department investigation. I just think this is what happened, you know, and, and they got an all-stock deal. They have some upside. You know, if Uber increases its valuation to 3x in the coming years, which is not crazy to me, this could actually be a really nice return for those who hold on to those shares long term. I, I wish we had half an hour more to talk about why you're such an Uber bull, but I want to go over to Tosh. Um, no, Alex, I was wondering what investors told you when you asked them, because I think there was like a head scratching period for everyone when the deal went through. Not necessarily like surprised that a deal happened, but just like, what is the benefit for anyone? So I have a couple ideas about this. You know, for, for Uber, having more total market share is a pretty pretty darn good thing. There's some benefits to having more leverage in market with restaurants. It's not great for restaurants. They would probably want to have a nice competitive market on the delivery side. That way they can pick the best deals and, you know, they can kind of negotiate rates. With fewer players, they're going to have less leverage. For Uber, that might mean a bigger take rate, which means they can probably have better economics. Tosh, as you and I have talked anything written about together, Uber Eats loses a lot of money. And so they're trying to do things that are going to make, make that a, a, a more profitable enterprise. And what, what I wrote about on this was if you look at some previous Postmates data and extrapolate it forward, it could be that the revenue that Postmates generates is actually a bit more efficient than what Uber Eats currently does. And so maybe there can be some more synergies there. And then Uber can actually save money on the aggregate food delivery part of its business. We'll see. I, I'm just, you know, Postmates used to be next door to TechCrunch back in like 2014. And like Bossy and the CEO, when we were like walking back to the office with burritos, like opened the window and shouted at us. And we, you know, it was it was back in kind of the fun days of tech before the, the late unicorn era and all this antagonism. And so I have some some kind of warm fuzzies for some of the humans there that I got to know. And so it's nice to see this this work out for them, but a long time coming. And they really had to fight for capital and it was, it was a slog, you know? And, and look, from a consumer deal, I mean, a, a almost $3 billion uh, exit in consumer is not something we've seen in a while. You know, we've seen a lot in fintech. We've seen a lot in enterprise. We've not seen this as much in consumer. So that was a great sign that there's still health in the M&A markets these days. Absolutely. This, this struck me as more of a, a unique deal than indicative of the health of the M&A market. But now that you say that, I mean, all right, fair enough. You know, people can a, a get... A deal is a deal, Alex. 
darn right. Unless it's an option, <laughs> then it's a bad idea. Touch. In which case, there, you need guardrails, and and this should have been reviewed by at least a hundred <laughs> oh regulators uh, to protect U- protect Uber from itself. The show is way funnier on Zoom when we do this. I think people would appreciate seeing how like we all just fall over. Anyways, Tosh, please. Um, no, I just wanted to end it on the point of like I'm. I want to continue tracking how this impacts the restaurant industry. I don't see in any way how this could benefit restaurants. These delivery apps are all losing money, so it's not like they're joining forces to make things better. They just now have a bigger... It's it's just more of a monopoly than before. Yes. Well, and one interesting dynamic on that front, Tosh, is I believe Portland just approved a 10% cap on fees for delivery Let's go. Uh, by the city council. So I, I think one interesting dynamic here, which might change, we'll have to see what happens in the coming you know, months, but cities may get more and more involved in regulating those prices for restaurants, even under consolidation. So even if the models say, assume a 25 take, you know, percent take rate, it'll be interesting to see how the dynamic plays out with the city councils. Are you in favor, Danny, of those uh, take rate caps? I think I think restaurants don't have to deliver. <laughs> I knew it. They don't have to. They don't have to deliver. They don't want to, right? They can in launch coronavirus. It's the backbone of their entire industry and operation, though. So I imagine that during this time, they don't really have a choice. Well, I, I, well, and I think the question is, you know, we've talked about this. We've joked about it, but you know, none of these companies are profitable, right? So they're taking 25 percent take rates, and they're still losing three hundred million a month. So then there's a question of like, well, what percentage is appropriate? And to my mind, as I mean, they're only ninety percent to break even. I think. Well, that's that's that may be the case, right? Which is so if you have a ten percent, you know, cap, you're basically meaning that there's not going to be a market that exists at all. So delivery may end, right? I I, I doubt that, but I do love how Tosh went ten percent. Let's go, and Danny went ten percent. Boo! Oh, anyways, and that's why we have more than one person on the show. Uh, let's quickly <laughs> talk about Palantir and then dive into some funding rounds before we before we wrap up, ladies and gentlemen. After even a longer saga than the Postmates acquisition saga. Palantir has filed, albeit privately. They are going to go public. Let the chorus of angels sing in the background. Chris, can we do a sound effect? Thank you. Uh, And I'm really, really hopeful that we'll get to see an S1 soon. Danny, how soon do you think after this private public filing, we'll see a public public filing? Uh, No idea. I mean, by the way, they announced it. That doesn't mean they announced it the day they filed confidentially, right? They could have filed it three weeks ago with the SEC, announced it confidentially this week. Um, what to me was interesting is I believe the cutoff, I could be totally wrong. I don't have the notes in front of me. I believe the cutoff for confidential filings around 1.08 billion or something on that order. Does that sound about right? I thought that- Is it higher? I thought that that rule was taken away and that way any company could file privately before. I thought that was, I thought that was changed in 17. You're right about the size for the emerging, com- emerging growth companies rules, but I thought that the private thing was different now. So yes, so so um, if if you want, there is a billion dollars written into the the law. It is a Jobs Act law, and then in 2017, 2018, they base the SEC has like an ongoing exception that you can just like file confidentially no matter what. That um, was so my impression. Basically, about that. ignoring the law. One thing I'm excited about learning about this company when we do get the filing is how, how big it is, because one thing that we've heard about it during Palantir's history, and it's been a long run of, of leaks and so forth, is it was supposed to be at nearly a billion dollars in revenue back in like 2014, and now it's supposed to be at a billion dollars today. So it was that bookings before that are being conflated as gap revenue. Did revenue go down at some point and recover? I have so many questions about this business. I it's. I know that I'm a dork and I'm not very cool, but I am super hyped about this S1. There's so many questions that I have that I want answered. And when it is coming out, we are going to have a special equity episode, a special shot as we call them, 
a single issue to go over the S1 whenever it comes out, assuming it comes out at a convenient time for us to actually record. The thing that I'm looking forward to is the breakdown between software and services. So, you know, Palantir has a SaaS component, obviously, but it also has, from what I hear, a massive services component. It actually integrates. Companies spend a lot of money on that integration from their engineers, for deployed engineers. And so I'll be curious to see the mix, the revenue mix here. It'll be a little bit more complicated of a story than Slack and some of the other IPS we've looked at in recent years. Yes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about some early stage rounds before we wrap up. So we're going to go through these relatively quickly. We're going to start with um, Danny. Help me out here. Quasitor. Quasitor. Yes, Quaystore. So this is this is a new company out of HVC. So talking about Palantir, a lot of the Palantir board members, Alex Moore, Joe Lonsdale, and others, you know, run HVC, and and they've sort of uh, had a model in the last couple of years of creating companies that are designed for startups. So they had Affinity, which is sort of a CRM for sales and investors and other folks that's popular in the Valley, and, and this is sort of the same one in the same kind of lineage. So it's called Quaystore, and it's focused on reinventing the way you connect with business metric data. Um, so imagine you're a, a startup, you have 30 people on the cap table, you've got to keep them updated with your monthly investor update uh, lists. You have folks in the company who want to debate, you know, your SaaS metrics or whatever. And there's all these people and noise and it's all kind of stuck in email. And so the idea of Quaster is to bring that all in one place, allow people to actually debate like, is this AR good? Is this churn number good? Should we improve it? What should we do? And so it's designed to be a little bit more of a, a system of engagement for business metrics. Founded uh, by two folks out of uh, 8VC who were kind of spinning out of the firm. One was their director of design, one was an EIR. And then also John Milas Kariazzi, who was an investor at Spark, was on a, a couple of boards there where he's continuing. But he he sort of left Spark a couple of months ago to go launch this together. And so super early, they raised $5.8 million in March, they officially announced this week. And looking forward to seeing what that product looks like in the, in the coming months. All right, moving on to Monkey Learn, which raised $2.2 million, uh, Uncork Capital and Bling Capital. Bling was new to me. Monkey Learn is pretty cool. They essentially do no-code AI text analysis. So if you are a person who is not a data scientist and you need to apply some kind of ML AI magic to kind of parse through a large body of text or data, this thing can help you do it. The reason why I wrote about it is, one, no-code is really cool. People are hype about no-code. If you tweet about no-code, you get so many responses. People just can't wait to talk about it. And also, I love the idea of taking technology and tools that are currently only available to a certain subset of users and give them to more teams. So if you've ever worked for a startup, you'll know that the marketing team is very data-driven. They are trying to find metrics and trying to find the the signal and the noise, for lack of a better uh, cliche. And I think this sort of tool will give them essentially superpowers if it works the way it's supposed to. And that's why it's so neat. 2.2 million isn't the the most money in the world, but I think this company has been running pretty efficiently. It's got a cool pricing structure. It's a hybrid of kind of single use add-ons and SaaS. They're kind of running the gamut on pricing to figure out what works, but I'm pretty hyped about it. And uh, it's moving away from being an API driven company and instead towards a no code startup, which is a first. I've never seen that model before, but we're short on time. So Tosh, tell us about mm-hmm and why that's actually the name of a company. Okay, so mm-hmm, which the CEO, Phil Libin, who was previously the CEO of Evernote, named because he wanted people to have to think about it when they say it. It doesn't just fall out of your mouth like Uber. Um, <laughs> you just say, mm-hmm. Is there an official tone for it? Oh, like, he, is he, it like happy? He, is it sad? Is it questioning? He said he welcomes the inflection in however way people want to inflect mm-hmm. it. I'm going to go with mm-hmm. So okay. mm-hmm. For those of you who don't see, I recommend pausing the podcast. This is the only time I'll ever tell you to do that. But check out its demo. It does it much more justice than I will right now. It's only five minutes. It's pretty cool. But it is a basically a video conferencing app that livens up the way we're all been Zooming, Google Meeting, and 
Skyping um, blue jeans thing for the past couple months. Basically, you turn it on and the video conferencing app makes your background much more interactive. Think you can, one example of it is like you can put up a Google Doc web page and you can scroll through the web page live. The people who are video conferencing with you don't have to toggle between, can interact with that. The reason I'm excited about mm -hmm is because so many people have settled for Zoom, Google Meet, and other tools because it's good enough. A lot of the ed tech companies I talk to have this really cool idea, but then I ask them like, okay, how are you going to teach it though? And they're like, oh, Zoom. And I'm like, but just because it's free doesn't mean that it has to be the solution. So this was the first time I've seen like meaningful innovation in the past couple months. So it was a felt like very um, like exciting startup vibes coming out um, by Casey Newton, who wrote the story for The Verge earlier this week. And Danny, he was a partner. Uh, Phil Leibman was also on the show back in the day. It's a great episode to go back and look it up. But he was at uh, General Catalyst for a bit. But I don't think you guys overlapped. Is that right? We did not. No, he, he came in after me and um, did consumer investing for a number of years. And I believe he started some sort of, I, I don't know what exactly what it was called, but some sort of like venture studio where he was trying to create uh, consumer products. So I, I assume that mm-hmm, mm-hmm uh, came out of that. And uh, for those who want to know, it is mmhmm.app which has to be one of the stranger, <laughs> you know, we talked about st names recently, but like, I, I will say that it has to be one of the more strange URLs I've seen in some time. Well, if you uh, pronounce it, you, yeah, you get, you get, mm -hmm, uh, if you just kind of say it without the dot. So it's really, it's really quite, quite the mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Phil Leibin's uh, venture studio collective builder garage band thingy is called uh, all turtles, if I recall correctly. But if this is the sort of thing that comes out of it, uh, I'm all for it because I watched the video that they put out and I don't often get excited about technology because it's what I use all day. So I'm a little bit inured to it, but I got to say I would pay for this and uh, I try to not buy more things on a subscription, but I would definitely cough up some money to have those tools and also that delight brought into my relatively static and boring uh, Zoom world. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are dramatically over time, so we must stop. Uh, I care about you both. Everyone listening, thank you for showing up. This has been Equity. It's July 9th and we're out of here. It's chocolate time. <laughs>